Well, how strong is your will? How long would you last in a battle of wills? If you've ever parented a toddler, you've been tested. And right around that two-year mark, children start developing a stronger sense of self-will, where they gain their own set of wants, which no longer necessarily coincide with your set of wants. The problem is, Proverbs 22.15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, so they lack sense and just left to their own devices. They would make a series of disastrous choices for themselves, leading to great ruin, even harm. Our will for them while they're young is better. Our will is informed by knowledge, experience, scripture. It's only good. It's only for their good that we impose our will on them while they're young. But they don't see it that way. They want what they want. They don't really care what you or others want. They are self-willed. They want every toy at the store. They want to stay up late. They don't want to eat the food you prepared for them. And when your wants come into conflict with their wants, a little battle of the wills ensues. And so who's going to win? You're bigger, but they're desperate. And to get what they want, they will cry. They will scream. They will flail around on the floor. All behavior I'm sure they learn from you. (laughs) But parents often just, just give in, being tired for the sake of a little peace and quiet. That would be a mistake, though, because you don't want to embolden that sense of self-will. To validate their selfishness early on is setting them up for a very hard life. There's a reason God commands children to honor and obey their parents. It's truly for their own good. And through loving shepherding, you must help redirect that self-will toward God's will. That they are they're more concerned with, with what God wants than themselves. Now, as much as we seek to help our kids learn this lesson, it actually applies equally to us. You know, picture yourself as the child in this equation and God as the father. He has a will. You have a will. Now, God's will is perfect, right? It's good. It's holy. It's righteous. It's, it's better. God knows what is best for us in our lives. But, you know, you still have your own little self-will. Even as Christians, sin remains. And so sometimes our self-will does not correspond to God's will. And whenever that happens, a little battle of the wills ensues between you and God. And so who's going to win that one? Sometimes can you be like that that toddler where you kind of dig in your heels, you refuse to submit to God's will. You just want to get what you want. The answer is yes. Every time you sin, that's what you're doing. That's, That's what sin is. Sin is, by definition, rebellion against the revealed will of God. We can still be a self-willed people opposed to God. When we are, it makes us liable to the Father's discipline. And some people need to learn the hard way that that the way of the wicked is hard. It's far better, though, just to learn the the easy way that God's will is better. You learn that by instruction, not discipline. Instruction, the Lord's instruction. And Lord Jesus gives us a lot of this instruction. He wants us to live knowing that God's will is better. Just, Just lay down your rebellion against his will. Submit to his will. It's it's only for your good. This is how Jesus wants us to live. This is how Jesus wants us to pray. And this is how he teaches us to pray in our text this morning in Matthew chapter 6. So we're back one more time. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Take your Bibles there. Open now. Matthew chapter 6. We're currently going through Matthew's gospel. More specifically, the Sermon on the Mount. And even more specifically, the the Lord's Prayer. I'd say most are at least familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Many grew up repeating it by rote. We've been learning a lot about this prayer over the past few weeks. Special notes, uh, contrary to the modern practice, this prayer is not meant to be a rote activity. Prayer is not about reciting the same words over and over. Remember what Jesus said back in verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 6. He says, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, literally, this is how some people treat the Lord's Prayer. But you're never meant to pray mindlessly or meaninglessly. You know, your, your mind must be fully filled with truth. That's going to 
bring out the affections of your heart. And that's what's going to come out of your mouth in genuine prayer and praise. And so that's how the Lord has been teaching us to pray in the passage that follows, verses 9 through 13. So it's often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really just a pattern, a model prayer. This is not meant for us to just repeat over and over again. This is a guide showing us how to pray, the priorities of prayer that pleases God. We're going to resume our study through this prayer this morning, but why don't we go ahead and read it again, get you familiar with it one more time. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Where after Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, so far we've covered the address of this prayer, meaning it's to God, our Father, who is in heaven. And we've covered the first two of these six petitions. Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. We've learned already how how to Jesus' prayer is first and foremost praise. The first thing on his mind was God. And the first things out of his lips was adoration. Our prayers should be the same. Where, you know, instead of just immediately coming to God with a list of wants and demands, we just sit in awe of him and worship. Now we're going to carry on today, though, with the third and the fourth petition. We're taking them two at a time, giving us time to dive in. The third and the fourth today, your will be done. Give us our daily bread. And this is where we see the transition from God's glory to our needs. Both have their place. God's place comes first, but our needs still matter. The first three petitions of this prayer all center on God and his adoration. That The second three focus on us and our needs. We need to see and understand the relationship between these two. It's a fair question to ask, what is the true place of our needs before a God like this, whose name is so hallowed? Does our will have any place before this sovereign king of the universe? Jesus has been leading us to to look up in prayer and see a big God and just exalt him, to adore him, to worship him. But we we wonder, like, where, where do we fit in? Do we fit in? Do we have any place to come before this God with our concerns? Everything Jesus says in this model prayer, it's it's succinct yet dense. It's packed with meaning. So that's why we're going slow. A couple phrases at a time even to really unravel. What what does he mean? What does he mean in teaching us how to pray? That's our goal. So we're carrying on with this overall aim, simply to learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. Not how to pray the Lord's Prayer, although you wouldn't be wrong to do so, but how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. And we carry on today with number three and four. So let's, let's dive in. Now, the third petition, your, your will be done. So third, your will be done. It's in verse 10, where he says, your kingdom come and then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, the first three of these petitions all focus on God. The first is God's name. The second, God's kingdom. The third, God's will. We ask now, what does this third petition mean? What are we really praying for here? We found that really the meaning to those first two petitions were were found by unlocking the meaning of God's name, the significance of God's name, the significance of God's kingdom. And it's the same here with the third. What is the significance of God's will? What are we praying for here? We need to get God's will right. So that leads us to ask, you know, what is this will of God that we're asking be done on earth as it's done in heaven? Well, here you have to make a distinction between the two wills of God in scripture, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And that's not a made up distinction. That's a biblical distinction. For example, listen to Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. You know the verse, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. 
You can see a distinction between the secret things and the things revealed. The revealed things, that's for us. Why is it given to us? That we may observe them. That we may keep the things revealed for obedience. The revealed will of God concerns his commands or his precepts. It's all that God has told us to do, how to live in alignment with his own character. That's why this is often called the will of precept or the will of command. But on the other side is God's secret will, these, these hidden things. This refers to his hidden decrees by which he rules the world, by which he has ordained all that will come to pass. This is often called the will of decree. But these decrees are only revealed to us, you know, after they happen, after the fact, then we know like, well, that obviously was God's decree. We're not privy to God's hidden will. We're not entitled to know it. That's why it's called secret. They're secret things. That's, that's kind of the point. Now, regarding God's will of decree, it's never thwarted. Right? Psalm 115.3, God sits in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Like Job confessed, Job 42, verse 2. He said to God, I know you can do all things. <clears throat> That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or like Ephesians 1.11 says, that God works all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things after the counsel of his will. There is no force on earth or in heaven that can ward off his hand, that can resist his sovereign will. And so God's ordained will is always done on earth and heaven. You don't need to pray about that. That is not the case for God's revealed will. His will of precept. The revealed will of God can be found in his ordinances, his commands, in the scriptures. And those, those can be resisted. Those can be thwarted. Those can be outright disobeyed. And again, that, that is the very definition of sin. All sin is rebellion against God's revealed will. He said something. He told us to live a certain way. We say, no, that's the very definition of sin. Now, obviously God in that, in that hidden will, he allowed for sin. He ordained that his own revealed will would be frustrated. He allowed sin, Satan, and death to enter this world, even though all three are fundamentally opposed to his revealed will. Yet he did this to enable his plan of redemption by which he would put on display his greater glory. He had greater purposes in, in this and in all things. But as it stands for us, we live in a world where God's revealed will is very much not done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? God's standards of righteousness, right now the, the heavenly host, they obey God immediately fully, happily, all the time. Uh, the earthly host, not so much. And so what Jesus, is leading, uh, what Jesus is leading us to pray about is that God's revealed will, his will of precept would be done on earth. Right? That's, that's what's behind this part of the Lord's prayer, that God's revealed will would be done on the earth. All right, let's take that thought even further. And we know that God's revealed will will not be done fully on earth as it is in heaven until the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, which is to say until Christ the king returns. So in, in the ultimate grand sense, this prayer looks forward to, to the end. It has that same eschatological focus as the previous prayer. Remember, your kingdom come. That we, we're ultimately longing for the day when the king returns. He sets up his kingdom reign. When he more fully brings about obedience to God's holy will. And so this prayer expresses that desire. But just like the prayer, your kingdom come, has plenty of implications for our day and age. So does this one. There are evangelistic implications. Because we desire all the nations to obey God. Remember, all sin is rebellion against God's will. And so our prayer is that all the nations would just cease and desist from that rebellion against God, right? We pray for God's righteousness to spread across the land like a blanket that people would obey 
God's will. That prayer partially gets answered in this age as we, the church, fulfill the Great Commission, preach the gospel to the nations, people come to salvation by which they then come under the revealed will of God. They order their lives under God's will. And so we must take that gospel to the nations. But the implications of this prayer go further still. Because there are also some ethical implications for our own lives. And even though we're redeemed and justified by faith in Christ, we, we still have the sinful flesh. And so part of us still lives in rebellion. Part of us, I mean, forget the nations for a second. What about just our lives? How much do we really obey the will of God? How much of the revealed will of God is done in your lives? Not all of it. So, so we must also be praying here that God's will be done in our lives. And really, that's first. That's foremost. Your will be done in, in my life first. It has to be that way. And what we find then is when you pray this prayer sincerely, it's going to have a sanctifying effect. Just like we learned last week with hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. When you, you pray that sincerely from a heart full of meaning, The Holy Spirit has a way of convicting you to bring your life into greater conformity with God's holy name and his kingdom rule. And it's the same with this prayer for God's will to be done. We we pray this as adoration, exalting God. We pray this, we're confessing his will is is good. It's, It's better. His will is perfect. We want to see it done in all the earth. We don't want sin to continue to reign. But at the same time, this prayer turns into a type of supplication where we're we're asking, we're praying, God, your will be done more in me. Now, last week, we spent all of our time thinking on prayer as adoration. Prayer really has praise. Now we're turning the corner to to think of prayer as supplication, where we're we're making our requests before God. So I want to highlight further that, that dimension behind this prayer, your will be done. When we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, it also serves as an implicit request for that will to be done in our lives, in our lives first. So now let's think about that even further. Because biblically, that, that's right on. That's what we are to do. That's how we are to live by God's will. Ephesians 5.17 says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And it's not talking about the hidden will of God. We, we can't understand that or know that. We're not told to pursue that. We're to understand his revealed will. That's something we must pray for. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that's, that's referring to God's revealed will. We are to pray for his will revealed will. We're only held accountable to God's revealed will. We don't know his hidden will. We're not entitled to it. We don't actually need to worry about it all that much. It's secret. Many Christians get so sidetracked, uh, sidetracked trying to spy into the secret things of the Lord. They they desperately want to get behind the veil and, and discover God's hidden will for their life. Just That God would just give them the answer to all their questions. Whom should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? Even down to the mundane. What should I have for lunch today? And they just pray, God, tell me. Just make every decision for me. Your will be done. But what is is your will? But such people, they're, they're preoccupied with the wrong will. Such things have not been revealed on purpose. They're called secret for a reason. And look, if God wanted to, I guess he could, but you're not entitled to special revelation telling you all of God's hidden will. You're not entitled to that. And and God does not expect you to be a little sleuth trying to find and discover by picking up all his unclear breadcrumbs what his hidden will might be for your life. That's not how he operates. It's not like you can't make biblical God-honoring decisions while not knowing his hidden will. He's given you everything you need for all of life and godliness. It's found where? In that revealed will. That's what he's given you. You want to know what to do? Just pay attention to what he's already revealed. 
His word is enough. His wisdom is enough for all your life, all your decision making. He's, he's told you what he wants you to focus on. It's found in his word. The scriptures are sufficient. And God simply wants you to order your life around that. That's more than enough for you. Just worry about that. Pray for that. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us. Why? That we may observe all the words of his law. Again, that's plenty. And wouldn't you say that until you keep his revealed word perfectly, you probably should spend less time worried about that hidden will. Until you master the revealed will, like just leave it at that. And that's going to take us our whole lives. But what I'm trying to tell you here is that, that God's revealed will should be behind more of your prayers. The will of God that you're asking be done on earth and in your life is found in his word. It's what he has revealed. Again, I fear a lot of Christians get prayer wrong because their prayers are just a little too full of self-will. Their prayer life looks like presenting a long list of wants before God and essentially saying, like, my will be done. Like, give me this. Do this for me. My will be done. But prayer is not the means by which we get our will done in heaven. It's the means by which God gets his will done on earth. Now, I want you to turn quickly to a parallel passage to help straighten this out for you. So turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. This is where Jesus, again, repeats the Lord's prayer. That's a separate occasion. An itinerant preacher, he would repeat things often. That's, that's fine. We're going to go after that. Because after that, he, he adds some additional teaching on prayer. Some extra instruction that is helpful. So let's look at some of that. Luke 11. We're going to go down to verse 9. Again, I bet you these words are familiar to you. He says, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Familiar words. Jesus is extolling the power of prayer. Prayer is real. God really hears prayer and he really answers prayer. You know, God is supreme and he has ordained all things, but that does not make prayer worthless. That that fatalistic view of prayer, really, that's more a conclusion of of a hyper-Calvinism. But you must not fail to realize that while God is sovereign over the ends, he's also sovereign over the means, and he has sovereignly ordained to use the faithful prayers of his people to bring about his will. God's sovereignty and and our responsibility are held in perfect tension all throughout the scriptures. It's no different for prayer. Prayer is not a sham. It is real. And so as for us, from our little human perspective, we're just supposed to take God at his word. And he tells us to pray. Trust that when we pray, he hears us and he will somehow sovereignly use our prayers to bring about his ordained will. It's part of the plan. And so very meaningfully, if you do not ask, you will not receive. If you're not praying, what do you expect? Be praying already. So, so get to praying. If you're not already, you should probably start praying. But the question we're asking is, you know, what are we praying for? What are we asking for? Are we, are we just, okay, is this the ticket to our every desire? Is this the means to get all the things we want? Is God a cosmic genie? Well, look at verse 11. Let's keep going. He says, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. And not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if we ask for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Pretty absurd illustrations, but it makes the point like, well, of course not. What kind of father would do that? God is a good father. Look, he knows how to give good gifts to his children. He loves his children. He wants what is best for his children. But now we have that one more follow-up question. Like, to God, what is a good gift? What would be his definition of a good gift to us, his children? What, what does he think is good? What does he think we need? Well, Jesus tells us in the next verse, one more, verse 13. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Now think about that. God is a heavenly father, but don't think of him like a man. He's, he's not a man. He's not carnal. He does not operate off the same definition of blessed. We define blessed as having what? A lot of money, good health, nice retirement plan, a nice car, pleasure, comfort, success. It's how we define blessed. But God defines blessed a little differently, like we learned back in the Beatitudes. You know, many, I think the prayer requests of many Christians, though, they're operating off of, well, just man's definition of blessed. Lord, give me more stuff. Give me the good life. Give me comfort. Give me ease. Give me pleasure. Give me success. My will be done. You see what Jesus is teaching us? What, what kind of good gift does the Father want to give us? What is a good gift in his mind? And Christ answers and says, it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not talking up prayer as the means for us to get more stuff, to get all of our wishes fulfilled. This is not about our will being done. Now, persistent prayer to a good father is the means of seeing more of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. To God, that's the greatest gift he could give you. Because he defines blessing as holiness. And what do you know? Why why do you think he gives us the spirit? To what end was the spirit given? The answer is holiness. Remember, he's called the Holy Spirit for a reason. God gives us the spirit in the new covenant that we may what? That we might obey all of his commands from a new willing heart. The spirit was given to enable us to actually obey the revealed will of God. That's the whole point in giving us the spirit. So you see, so far what we've learned from Jesus in prayer, there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for our self-will. Most of the room is dominated by God's will. We should be seeking and praying for God's will to be done on earth, in our lives. That will is revealed in the scriptures, is righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That's what we're asking for. It's what we should be praying for more than our will. Now, practically speaking, if you you were to further implement Christ's teaching here, that means most of your prayer requests should center on God's revealed will. That's what you should be asking to see done in your life. What does that look like? Well, just, just go look at what is the revealed will of God. How about, I don't know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, which says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Straight up tells you, this is the will of God, your Christ-likeness. You're praying for holiness. You're praying for the fruit of the Spirit. You're praying to overcome sin. You're praying to resist temptation. You're praying to uh, be protected from the evil one. You're praying for endurance in trials. You're praying for perseverance in suffering. You know, everything the Bible says we are to do. That list goes on. I'll tell you what, unless you're perfect, unless you've arrived at your Christ-likeness, that means never again can you say you have nothing to pray for. When someone asks you, what, how can I pray for you? And you say nothing, you can't say that anymore. Unless you're like Christ, you can't say nothing. Just pray for how you need to spiritually grow. Let this elevate your prayer life. Maybe, maybe you're in a small group setting. It's time for you to give a prayer request, but you know, nothing really comes to mind. So, but you got a trip coming up. So you say, you know, just, just pray for travel mercies. And just pray that I have a nice flight. I've done that before, right? You want a smooth flight. Who doesn't? Is there anything wrong with that? But it just here's the thing. We, we don't know if a smooth flight is part of God's hidden will for your life. It very well may be part of his will that you have a terrible flight or a delayed flight or a canceled flight for a million other purposes. But so why do we just default to praying for more comfort and more ease? That, that's just our will. That's, that's what we want. But wouldn't it be better, though, just to pray that, that God's will be done? God, that God would strengthen you on your trip to deal with all sorts of travel trials with the fruit of the Spirit, like patience, like self-control, like kindness. Why not just pray God's will be done and focus on what, what he's already revealed? Again, isn't that enough? That is what Jesus is getting at. You can go back to Matthew 6. That's what he's getting at behind this prayer. Your will be done on earth. Now, I'm making the point that 
most of the room of our prayer life should belong to God's will. His revealed will. Pray more according to his revealed will. His will be done. But I know you're wondering, like, okay, does that mean there's no room for our self-will? I mean, like the things we want, our desires. What about travel mercies? Like, I still want a nice flight. Is that, is that so wrong? What about healing for a loved one? What about finding a job? These, these all express desires we have that aren't explicitly part of the revealed will of God. Does that mean we can't, we can't pray those? We can't touch those? We can only pray God's revealed will? Is there any place for self-will in prayer? Let me answer that. Now, first, you have to distinguish between your old self-will and your new self-will. Right? These desires you have, are they coming from your old self or your new self? Assuming you're a Christian, you're a believer, you have an old self and a new self. Are they coming from the flesh or the spirit? That, that old self-will comes from your flesh. The flesh is that part of us still dominated by sin, still living in rebellion against God's will. It's inherently selfish. So I hope it goes without saying, you should not pray according to your old self-will, according to the desires of your sinful flesh. One good way to identify the, the desires of the, the flesh, your old self-will Just consider if the answer to your prayer would lead you into temptation. uh, Do you think that's coming from the spirit or the flesh? You can be sure that that's your old self-will trying to get out. And how many people, for example, they pray that just that God would make them rich. There's nothing wrong with with being rich, but the love of money. First Timothy 6.10 says is the root of all sorts of evil. So if you think you you take a prayer expressing your love of money, you turn that into a prayer, do you think that's coming from the spirit or the flesh? Just ask, does your prayer coincide with the supremacy of God's name, God's kingdom, God's glory, or your own? Is your prayer designed to further your honor, your name, your kingdom, your glory, or God's? Already, it's going to cut off a lot of our our fleshly-driven prayers that we should not be praying. But we're still going to have plenty of desires left over that they, they don't seem to contradict God's revealed will, that they're not leading me into temptation. They seem, you know, neutral. They seem fine. You know, just, I'm not sure if they're part of God's hidden will. So, so what do we do? Can we pray asking God for those desires? And the answer there is, is of course, yes. Yes. Go ahead. Submit your supplications to God. In fact, we're told to do so. Philippians 4, 6 says, let your requests be made known to God. It doesn't say thereafter, your wish is my command. This is not rubbing the genie's lamp. It's let your requests be made known to God. You take your will, your desires, and you lay them at his feet. You say, these are my requests. But this is why, maybe you've heard, we add one little critical phrase to our prayers like that. In that category, we say, if, if it's your will. Or we might say, your will be done. Right? We're to pray like this. Lord, here's the desire of my heart. This is what I want, but not, not as I will. Your will be done. Lord, here's, here's this thing I want. Here's this desired circumstance. You let it be known, but your will be done. You're just, you're just praying like Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Where he let his request be made known. But then he said, Matthew 26, 39... Yet not what I will, but as you will. That's not just a little magic phrase we tack on to the end of our prayers. It has to be said meaningfully as an expression of our heart. That that we humbly are submitting all of our desires to the sovereign will of God. And we accept whatever the answer is. This is the biblical pattern of prayer and planning in scripture outside the revealed will of God. For example, James 4.15 says, it says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. This is a call to a, a humble dependence on the sovereign will of God as it unfolds. We're not being presumptuous. We're not demanding. We can still plan, but we're holding things with an open hand, you know, as the Lord wills. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or it's like Paul told the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, or 19, 
He told them, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. The apostle doesn't know the secrets of God's hidden will. He doesn't know if he will actually be enabled to visit them or not. He expresses his desire, but he still resigns himself to the, the ultimate will of God, which we don't know, but as it unfolds, just I'm submitting myself to that. Here's my desire. Our prayers should be the same way. When you have personal desires that are outside the revealed will of God, but, but they don't contradict the revealed will of God, then, then yes, present them before the Lord. Take them all before the Lord. And if you do not ask, you will not receive. So you better be praying and asking, letting all of your requests be made known. But we don't demand. We, God wants us to have this humble dependence on him where we're persisting in prayer with our desires, examining our desires. Is this from the spirit or from the flesh? But in humble dependence, we always say, Lord, that here are my desires. This is my self-will. This is what I want. But I'm not going to say my will be done. Lord, at the end, your will be done. When you pray like this, you're already showing how you're ready to accept in advance whatever the answer might be. Yes, no, maybe, wait. However things unfold, you're accepting God's sovereign will because you get it. Prayer, you're not trying to bend God's will to your will. That, that doesn't happen. You're rather seeking your own will to come into greater conformity with his perfect will. Because he has the perfect will, right? His will should be done. That's all you want. So take all of your requests to God. You trust him to work it out. You pray like a child, just, just independence. He says, pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to persistently pray. But at the end of the day, not my will be done, but your will be done, O Lord. That is worship. Is that not an expression of faith in God? That's not why we call this prayer still part of adoration. This is it's an act of worship because you're showing, you're saying, I believe that he is, he hears, he's good, but his will is perfect. I submit to all of that. I just trust my father implicitly. I'm going to go to him. He tells me he wants to hear from me, but I'm going to submit to him as well. This is how we should pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we need to turn a corner before our time is up and include the fourth petition this morning. So back to Matthew 6. It's a perfect transition though, because like I said, these first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, they all focus on exalting God. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. These are God-centered expressions of adoration. That's what they are, foremost. But although God is supreme, that, that does not swallow up our needs. He is also a heavenly father who cares for us. Like I said, he wants us to go to him with our needs. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why God loves it when we pray. Because I think prayer is probably the greatest expression of faith. No one with a phony faith is really praying in secret. There's no, nothing to get out of it. That the genuine prayer is, is an expression. You, you trust God. You believe in him. You depend on him. You submit to him. You yield to him. I mean, that's just pure faith and pure prayer. And so go ahead. Bring all of your supplications to God. He cares about your needs. And we've already caught a little glimpse of what that looks like. But we want to ask further now, how do we do that? What should it look like when we take our requests to God? Jesus answers in the second half of the Lord's Prayer. We find here a prayer for daily bread, a prayer for forgiveness of sins, and a prayer of protection from the evil one, overcoming temptation. Here Jesus leads us to submit before God our physical needs and our spiritual needs. But what Jesus leaves out should strike you. You see, there's, there's, there's little room in here for our wants, and we already covered, it's not wrong to pray uh, your wants, submitting them to the Lord. But, but again, this room is dominated by God's will. And that the space Jesus carves out for us pertains to our needs. Not really our wants, but our needs. Our physical needs, our spiritual needs. And just as Jesus defines blessing differently than we do, he defines needs differently than we do. And so what, what do we really need from God according to Jesus? And therefore, how should we pray? 
Well, let's keep going. We're going to cover today the fourth petition. We're going to save that, that plea for forgiveness and protection for next time, which addresses our spiritual needs. Let's just cover now today, number four, learning to pray for our physical needs. Number four, give us our daily bread. This fourth prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. See how Jesus now switches to second person imperatives? Give us. Now, it's not like we're commanding God. Imperatives can also come in the form of please. And so this is a request, a supplication, we call them. An entreaty. The first thing, though, Jesus leads us to request from God concerns our physical needs. Give us bread. That's the first prayer. When it comes to us, first prayer, give us bread. Isn't that interesting? Right? He just finished with these three prayers extolling the transcendent majesty of God's name, kingdom, and will. And then when he switches to our needs, he just immediately goes to the most basic, mundane, human need. Give us bread. Isn't that kind of interesting? It was because of that that many in the early church spiritualized this verse. They reason that Jesus, I mean, he can't really be talking about actual bread here and our physical needs. The body doesn't matter. Only the spirit matters, they thought. And praying for literal bread, that, that does not seem spiritual enough to belong in the hallowed Lord's prayer. So they interpreted this as either communion or the Bible. Give us our daily bread, the Lord's Supper or the scriptures. Both are wrong. There's just nothing in the text or the context to indicate that at all. And to the contrary, later in the same chapter, just a few verses later, Jesus will show us how our Heavenly Father is very much concerned with our physical needs from food to clothing. Now, that being said, Jesus is likely using a type of figure of speech known as synecdoche, if you remember that from high school class, where a little part is used to represent a whole. And so likely here, bread is used just to stand in for all of our survival needs, food, water, clothing, shelter, just what we need for life, like to actually be alive. This is further evidenced by this adjective daily. It's not just give us bread, it's give us daily bread. And God designed us humans to be very fragile. We need sustenance every day of some sort. That he, he forces us to live in dependence on his sovereign provision. That's actually doubly emphasized in this verse. Because also the verb give us is itself modified by this adverb this day. You see that? Give us this day our daily bread. So doubly emphasized our daily dependence on God. And that right there actually tells us what we need to know about this verse. This prayer, it's really one of dependence on God. We are to go to God with the needs of life, expressing how we daily depend on him. And every atom in the universe depends on God moment by moment for its existence uh, as the sustainer. We're no different. This prayer confesses that in faith. You know, there was a time when God literally made his people dependent on him for literal daily bread. Back after the Exodus, during the wilderness wanderings of Israel. They're in that wilderness that could not sustain life. Certainly not the two million plus Jews who had left Egypt. But God provided for them, right? Manna from heaven, only enough for one day's portion. Anything more they kept would spoil overnight by his command. He literally was forcing them to recognize and live for 40 years that they they owed their existence and their subsistence to, to God as their creator, their uh, sustainer, and their redeemer. It's the same for us. God is glorified when we pray this because it's recognizing our rightful dependence on him. But like the trend continues, we've seen with all these prayers that as we pray this, it has a way of changing us. Prayer is meant to change us. And when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's meant to both express and increase our faith as we were reminded that that we depend on God for every moment of our existence. Every breath we breathe is borrowed. I mean, should we not be reminded that this life is not our own? This life doesn't even belong to us. It came from God. It's going to return to God one way or another. We are his creation. It seems like we had better than use this life for his 
greater purposes, that perfect will, while daily depending on his uh, sustaining grace. And Jesus wants us to live in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment faith. That's what this verse, this prayer expresses and grows. And this prayer also has the byproduct of producing in us contentment. If you pray this sincerely and meaningfully, it will have a little nice little byproduct of contentment. We're to go to God in dependence, trusting him to meet our actual needs, knowing he will. I mean, we realize you're not entitled to anything before God or from God. We're not entitled to a single thing, not even a single breath. He's the creator. We are entirely dependent beings. But God cares for our needs, especially his children, believers. He he cares for you, knowing that he promises to care for your needs that should be enough. That's how Paul can say in 1 Timothy 6, 8. He says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Right? We're good to go. If we got food and covering with these, we shall be content. And really, this prayer, it gets fleshed out later in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, the cure for anxiety, where Jesus is going to teach us later in Matthew 6, verse 25, you don't need to worry about your life. You don't need to worry about your life, he says. You don't need to worry about tomorrow, verse 34. God knows what you need, what you actually need, not what you think you need, but he knows what you need, food, water, clothing, to live. He cares for you. He's a good father. Just trust him for your daily bread. And what? Verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. Contrary to belief, you don't actually need a new iPhone. He'll care for your needs. Your wants are subject to his hidden will. But like, isn't this the same lesson we've, we've been learning? That, that we should be prioritizing the revealed will of God over our personal desires. Seek God's will. Seek his kingdom rule over and above all your wants and desires. Hey, you still make your requests known, but you want foremost his will for your life. And be content in what God provides. That that really is the path to a blessed, peaceful life. I mean, look, you, you just don't ever find Jesus leading us to pray for luxury or comfort or abundance. Isn't that interesting? I mean, all that stuff is promised to us in the kingdom. Not in this life, in the next life. That will be the better life. It's not wrong to receive it now. If God so designs, you're blessed, you're richly blessed in, in man's thinking. Hey, you, like I said, use it for his glory. But, but this lust after abundance is never sanctioned in scripture. I'm pretty sure you would never hear a prosperity preacher pray this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Like that's not enough. We can't stop at daily bread. We got to keep going. No, Lord, give us, give us abundance. Give us everything we want. Give us the good life. Give us everything. Again, why do you think Jesus never prayed like that, never leads us to pray like that? It's because God doesn't care about our wants. No, it's because Jesus thinks God himself is already enough for us. God is the treasure, not the stuff. God is the treasure. We need more of God in our lives, not money or stuff. I mean, knowing God, that's the fountain of everlasting fulfillment, the fulfillment you long for. It's found in God and his son, Christ. So why are you praying for broken cisterns? Again, if the father chooses to give you abundance in this life, hey, thank him for it. Use it for his glory. But that's not what we're lusting after. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 9. He who wants to get rich falls into temptation. So we should, like D.A. Carson said, we should be praying for our needs, not our greeds. And those who seek more than their daily bread they might find really not a blessing, but a curse. It's just like Agur said. I'm sure you all know the words of Agur, right? Everybody knows the words of Agur? It's in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. He has a little portion of scripture that he authored, Agur. It says this, though, Proverbs 30, 8 through 9, where he says to the Lord in prayer, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a prayer for daily bread. 
He didn't want to get away from this steady day by day dependence on God as his sustainer. And I pray that our prayers, our love for God would be the same. That God's enough. We're content with that he provides for the day. That's enough because we have God. That's everything. We have Christ to live as Christ. We're good to go. And can I just add, just because you're rich, that doesn't mean you don't need to pray for your daily bread. In the ancient world, many people were day laborers. They worked for a literal day's wages. They used that money to buy literally daily bread. If they didn't work, they did not eat. So they were actually dependent on a daily bread. It was a, probably a much more meaningful prayer for them of dependence. Today, that's not the case. I mean, bread is so abundant. We give it away for free at restaurants as an appetizer. We just get bread for free. And very few people in America are in need of daily bread. I'd say most of you probably have stocked fridges and pantries and bank accounts. You don't really need daily bread. You've got, you've got monthly bread already. Does this exempt you from praying for daily bread? No. Because again, this prayer is not just about bread. It's about dependence and trust in God. And don't let the mirage of stability in our society fool you into thinking that you don't daily depend on God. You actually do. And practically speaking, if God just merely breathed on the earth, I mean, our whole food supply chain would melt down. Do you have any idea how fragile our supply chain is? You caught a little glimpse of it in COVID when you went to buy toilet paper and, God forbid, Costco didn't have any. I mean, life is still incredibly fragile. Weather is fragile. Health is fragile. Stocks are fragile. Bank accounts are fragile. Just you wait. You might find yourself in need for literal daily bread before you know it. But that doesn't matter. Whatever the case, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because again, it both expresses our faith in God as our provider and sustainer and grows that faith. That is the secret Paul discovered in Colossians, or I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 12 and 13, when he says this. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that right there, that's what we need to both learn and express when we pray. And we do so when we pray to God. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not wrong to plan ahead. It's not wrong to make provision for the futures. It's not a sin to store food like Joseph did in Egypt. But the point is, do not live as if you don't have a heavenly father. Do not live as if you're not dependent on him day by day, moment by moment, because you are. The more you realize that, the greater your faith. I think if we had to sum up just in one word, this teaching on prayer from the Lord today It would be the word submission. I mean, primarily, who is the disciple of Jesus Christ? It's one who lives in submission to God. Who recognizes the rightful lordship of Christ over his or her life. It's where you no longer seek in your heart of hearts to live by your will, but God's will. You no longer want to depend on self, but on the Lord. And true faith consists of yielding control over your life, over to the Lord, knowing he's good, he's better, he's wise, he's sovereign. You just rest in him. Only such a disciple can then truly pray as both adoration and supplication. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just give me my daily bread. Do you think you can pray that? Could you make that your sincere prayer? It's actually quite a test of faith because that prayer rings hollow if you're actually still living in rebellion against God. Right? Talk is cheap. Jesus will teach us later in Matthew 7, 21. It's actually not enough just to call Jesus Lord with your mouth. Anybody can just say Jesus is Lord. But he's going to tell us who's actually going to enter the kingdom. He says, it's the one who does the will of my father. It's the one who's living the revealed will of the Father. We know that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. 
How do you know you have that saving faith? It's by the fact that you have, by grace, you've waved the white flag to God. You've surrendered. You've laid down your arms. You've given up your rebellion against him and his ways. You've, you've gone over to his side. You've pleaded for mercy, just saying, save me. Thankfully, that's a prayer he promised to answer every time someone genuinely prays it. Being then justified or made right with God by faith, you join his side. You now enter, you're transferred to the kingdom of light. You start now living in the light. You actually start fighting the darkness. I mean, no longer do you allow sin to have a safe harbor in your heart. You now start rebelling against the devil but you submit to God and his will. Not perfectly. We still, even now, stumble into the darkness. That's why Jesus is next going to teach us to pray and confess our sins for that renewal and washing. But no longer is your self-will behind the captain's wheel any longer. Christ is. No longer is your self-will on the throne of your heart. Christ is. So is that you? And to follow Jesus, have you, have you met the one prerequisite he said? You've got to deny yourself. Have you done that? Have you crucified self to follow him? In the end, God will conquer all rebels. That's not a question. But the rebellion of sin, Satan, and death itself against his name, his kingdom, and his will, that's not going to last forever. It's really just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. Christ will return. He will crush all rebellion But God is merciful. He promises to redeem those who surrender to his son right now. It's a recognized Christ who died on the cross, rose from the dead, and submit to him as risen king, as Lord of lords. You have to, in the end, choose which garden you will live by. Which garden will characterize your prayers and your relationship to God? Are you going to remain in Eden? Where you tell God, not your will, my will be done. I'm going to go my own way. And if so, you'll be cast out from his presence forever. But will you join Christ in Gethsemane, the other garden, where he prayed, not not what I will, but your will be done. When you rebel against God in Eden, you're led to believe that it's going to lead to the fulfillment of your every desire. You've been deceived. You're only going to find suffering and death. But in Gethsemane, when you're with Christ and you submit to God, it might involve suffering and death like it did for Jesus, but it will lead you to lasting peace, joy, and fulfillment. So I pray you catch a glimpse of the way of Christ, the way of the cross, the way of salvation this morning. Submit to God. Walk in his way. His ways are better. So walk in his ways and then you'll come to pray in his way. Your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Let's pray that now. Our Father who is in heaven, we pray hallowed be your name. Learning from Christ first to just come before you and not just rush to our needs and wants, our troubles, our trials. The mind runs to and fro with all the worries of this little life, but we need to stop and pause and remember that we serve a great God. We, we stand before a great God. We're hearing the word of our great God. We need to to remember and worship to, to calm our hearts and just praise you. We do praise you, Lord, for giving us your word, for giving us your son, uh, for giving us all that we need for life and godliness, for guidance, for all things. We exalt you, Lord. We pray you, you conform us as your people to your will. All of us once were fully in rebellion against your will. We thank you that by your sovereign grace, you conquered us by sending the Son, by calling us, enabling us to repent and believe, come to you. We thank you for the work you've done in our hearts. If anyone has not yet received that, we pray that you sovereignly would conquer them and that they themselves would surrender even now to Christ as their Lord and King and learn what that means and draw near to the Savior in a true saving faith, even today. But for us who have, we still know a remnant of rebellion remains in our flesh. We, we need this teaching. We need these prayers to, to be made real in us that we would pray and mean it. We want your will done on the whole earth, first in our lives. Bring that about, Lord, by your spirit. The reason you've given 
the great Holy Spirit to us, to make us like Christ, to make us holy. And so fill us with your spirit. May we walk by that spirit, bear the fruit of that spirit. Pray accordingly. You've given us all we need. We have, we have daily bread. We all have way more than daily bread. You're, you're, uh, you have blessed us in many different ways. We have to give you thanks. Never, never keep us from a daily dependence on you though, Lord. Help these truths to enter our mind and remind us we need to live every day and every moment just attached to you. We're, we're just children who cannot survive without their parents. We need you. And so keep us close to you. Help us to never forget you. Uh, but always uh, pray for our, our daily needs to you. Well, each and every day, each and every moment. Keep us connected to you through Christ, through the Spirit. We thank you for all that you've done for us and given to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.